Welcome to this NJ Spotlight Roundtable. Prescription drug prices in New Jersey. Can we improve price transparency and control costs? This program was recorded Friday, October 18th, 2019 at the RWJ Fitness and Wellness Center in Hamilton, New Jersey. New Jersey lawmakers are looking to increase transparency when it comes to the prices of pharmaceuticals marketed in the Garden State. Their goal, boost competition among drug makers in ways that will lower consumer costs. While prescription drugs remain a relatively small percentage of the overall healthcare tab nationwide, those costs are more volatile and are escalating at an alarming rate. From 2012 to 2016, while overall healthcare spending rose 18% in New Jersey, drug costs jumped 27% during those four years. Several steps to combat rising drug prices have been initiated. The New Jersey Senate Health Committee unanimously approved a bill that would require state officials to establish a public website listing the wholesale cost of medications. New Jersey Attorney General Gerbeer Graywall joined a multi-state lawsuit charging generic drug makers with artificially inflating the prices on more than 100 medications. At the federal level, several bipartisan proposals have been introduced to curb costs, increase transparency, and limit brand name patents. In this program, we'll discuss with experts the progress the state has made and prospects for improvements in addressing rising prescription drug costs and determining effective paths forward to ensure patient health and financially equitable availability of medications. And now let's go to the lectern where John Mooney, the founding editor of NJ Spotlight, will introduce today's program. So welcome everyone. Uh, my name is John Mooney, uh, founding editor of NJ Spotlight, and uh, thrilled to have you here um, to discuss this uh, important topic. But first, um, before I make some remarks, raise your hand if you've been to an NJ Spotlight event before. Raise your hand if you haven't. All right, so this is, this is for those who haven't, and I apologize to those who have. Um, a bit of a repeat, but I give you a little background on, on, on these events and why we do them. Uh, we, have, we have held in our 10 years uh, close to 100, if not more. We've sort of lost count of these events around the state, uh, delving into important topics that uh, are part of our mission as, as journalists to cover. And um, really feel these events, and we're, we've come to call them live journalism, are, are uh, you know, critical to that mission in bringing folks together to talk about uh, these issues. It's, uh, we, we live in our silos and our, and our cell phones and tablets, and, and the opportunity to get in the same room and, and discuss these issues, I think, is, is critical um, you know, to, to uh, the civic good. And, uh, and I'm, I'm thrilled you all could be part of it. Um, as you may know, uh, we also recently uh, got married. Uh, and, and joined uh, with NJTV and WNET Public Media, um, and you know, very much committed to extending these events further and, and expanding. So uh, I think it's it's, it's really going to be part of our, if it's not already, but part of our DNA going forward. As such, we also um, these events are now live streamed, uh, and welcome NJTV in the back. Um, and uh, these not only are they live, but you can tell your friends and 
and colleagues that uh, those get archived and, and can watch them. And, and a lot of this is not just about being here, but extending this conversation. So uh, the live stream will be up um, as soon as it's completed. It's up right now as we speak. Uh, we also do a podcast, um, which we will be posting on a, on a site that's dedicated to this event uh, early next week. So lots of conversation can continue beyond this. Um, these events don't happen without our sponsors and our supporters, um, and they certainly don't happen for free. I know you guys go to a lot of conferences and meetings, oftentimes with a ticket price. Uh, we feel very strongly that these remain free, but that couldn't happen without uh, support of our sponsors to do so. And I'd like to uh, welcome Steve Shallot, our, our uh, business director, to talk a little bit about our sponsors, and then we can begin with the program. Thank you, John. As I adjust the microphone to be somewhat lower, you can see we have a um, uh, little bit of contrast. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, I'm here to say a few words on behalf of our sponsors because, as John mentioned, without whom we would not be able to make these events happen and with whose support uh, make these possible, we're, we're extremely grateful. Um, first, I'd like to speak on behalf of AARP which is the nation's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to empowering Americans 50 and older. AARP believes no one's possibilities should be limited by their age. In the Garden State, AARP has 1.3 million members, and across the country, nearly 38 million members and offices in every state. AARP seeks to find new solutions to enable more people to live and age as they choose, educating and advocating at the local, state, and national level. Here in the Garden State, AARP, AARP New Jersey focuses on issues important to New Jersey residents with a focus on health, security, and financial stability. Americans continue to pay the highest brand name drug prices in the world, with older Americans uh, being particularly vulnerable. This year, AARP launched its Stop Rx Greed campaign, a national sustained effort aimed at pressing Congress, the administration, and state lawmakers to take action to lower drug prices while avoiding shifting of the costs within the healthcare system. So thank you to AARP for helping make this, this possible, and their table is over there with literature um, for you to uh, take as well as on your tables. Also sponsoring is New Jersey Citizen Action. NJCA is a statewide grassroots advocacy and service organization that has for more than 30 years fought for social, racial, and economic justice for all New Jerseyans. New Jersey Citizen Action promotes policies and also provides education and direct services to help address the needs of low and moderate income residents. Healthcare is one of the several core issues that NJCA works on. Your, the organization also convenes NJ for Healthcare, the state's consumer health co coalition, which works to ensure all New Jerseyans have access to affordable health uh, quality care. NJCA and their coalition partners have championed numerous healthcare initiatives, including passage of and defense of the Affordable Care Act, protections against surprise medical bills, establishment of a state-based exchange, and an early screening process to help prevent addiction among youth. They continue to work to advance policies that will rein in healthcare costs and expand affordable coverage to more New Jerseyans. So thanks to New Jersey Citizen Action and again to AARP for their sponsorship support. And with that, turn it back over to John. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. All right, we'll get uh, we're started with our program. Now, after all 
what I said about everyone getting in the same room, um, this event actually has a more technological edge than, and, than others we've had before. Um, and a couple pieces to that. Uh, as you'll see, as, and this will uh, flash up as well, we uh, typically ha have an interactive where folks submit questions uh, on index cards and hand it to us and we get it up to the moderator. Uh, we will continue to do that, um, but we are also inviting you to um, tweet your questions uh, so that we can then pick those up and also uh, send them to the moderator. And the tweeting questions to uh, tag a prescription, what, what's an event without hashtags, by the way? Uh, prescription drug costs NJ, and you'll see this flash up there as well with, a, uh, with our tag, uh, NJ Spotlight. Um, so please do that. We're seeing how that works. That's something that's been done uh, at other conferences and is uh, to great effect, and we're, we're, we're seeing how that works. And we're also gonna be uh, bringing you some uh, opening video um, that I think will be provocative. Uh, there'll be two pieces to this. One is a video that was produced by NJTV uh, News uh, in covering this issue, and then that will be followed by a virtual keynote. Yes, we have virtual keynotes now um, from uh, Congressman Frank Pallone, um, who couldn't be with us today, but uh, is doing the keynote from Washington, D.C. And, and of course, many of you know him, and on this issue especially, he is the sponsor of the Lower Drug Costs Now Act of 2019, and obviously he will have a lot to say. So uh, without further ado, I think we'll uh, run our first video and then follow up with uh, Congressman Pallone. In conjunction with the National Day of Action, Congressman Donald Norcross held a press conference in Camden. He said high drug prices are forcing many people into tough situations. They're having to make those unbelievable decisions that nobody should have to face. Is it food or pills? Is it rent or is it my medicine? That's not the country we live in. That shouldn't be what you have to think about when you're taking your medicine. Norcross said the country should pursue four goals. Allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices, create more price transparency, encourage more use of generics, and provide even greater access to health insurance. A local doctor said he sees the problem most acutely when a patient has a devastating life event. We're talking people who come into the ER with strokes, heart attacks, second, third heart attacks. Um, the, the first one is bad enough, but they're ending up in the ER a second and a third time because they could not afford basic blood pressure medicines. And we're talking, we're talking uh, strokes that result in not being able to walk, not being able to talk. Dr. Oyeyemi said it's crazy that inhalers now cost $180. Norcross singled out the price of insulin, which he said has gone up four times faster than inflation just in the first six months of this year. The event was held at Virtua Our Lady of Lords Hospital in Camden. It was organized by New Jersey Citizen Action. This is a story about putting patients above profits. And it doesn't mean that in any way we will hurt innovation or hurt research. Pharmaceutical companies, when asked to defend high prices, often talk about the huge cost of developing a new drug. Healthcare Institute of New Jersey CEO Dean Peranicus told us today, New Jersey is a global leader in the quest to find new life-saving treatments and cures. 
We continue to work with our congressional delegation and all stakeholders to balance affordability and patient access with continuing to research and discover that next generation of treatment and cures. What does Norcross say about all that? What I say is come to my neighborhood, come here to Camden, come to Cherry Hill, where we're seeing people literally having to make this decision. In Washington, the House of Representatives has passed a number of bills that address high drug prices, but it's unclear whether there is enough support in the Republican-controlled Senate. President Trump has talked about lowering drug prices. Bernie Sanders talked a lot about it at the last Democratic presidential debate. So it's an issue of interest to both the right and the left. In Camden, I'm Michael Aaron, NJTV News. Good morning, everyone. I'm Congressman Frank Pallone from New Jersey's 6th Congressional District. I'm sorry that I can't be there with you in person today, but I wanted to thank New Jersey Spotlight for inviting me. I'd also like to thank the event sponsors, AARP New Jersey and New Jersey Citizen Action. For years, we have been on the front lines together fighting to make healthcare and prescription drugs more affordable and accessible for all New Jerseyans. Today, I want to update you on my work in Washington as my colleagues and I fight to make prescription drugs more affordable for all Americans. As the chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, one of my top priorities is lowering prescription drug costs. Prescription drugs save and improve lives, but they can be extremely expensive for consumers. The Kaiser Family Foundation poll found that one in four Americans say their prescription medications are unaffordable, and it's the same here in New Jersey, where 24% of residents reported not taking medication as prescribed because of high costs in 2017. And unfortunately, the prices continue to skyrocket. According to ARP, the average annual cost of prescription drugs rose nearly 58% between 2012 to 17. And that's outrageous as these prices are forcing patients to make tough decisions. Do they skip doses or cut them in half in order to stretch the medications out? But nobody should have to make these choices, and that's why I'm working on comprehensive legislation to negotiate a better deal on drug prices for Americans. Last month, after months of work with my colleagues in the House, including Speaker Pelosi, I introduced H.R. 3, the Lower Drug Costs Now Act. This legislation empowers the federal government to finally negotiate better prices for Americans. Negotiation is one of the most meaningful actions we can take to help consumers. As you know, here in the United States, drug companies can charge whatever they want because there is no competition until a generic comes to market and because the federal government has no ability to negotiate drug prices. That results in Americans paying significantly more for the same drugs than people in other countries. Sometimes we're paying three, four, or 10 times as much for the same drug, and that's simply not fair. For years, the American people have been subsidizing prescription drugs for the rest of the world. Under this legislation, those days are over. It's long past time that we give the federal government the authority to negotiate drug prices with pharmaceutical manufacturers in order to bring down costs for patients. The Lower Drug Costs Now Act directs the Secretary of Health and Human Services to identify the 250 most expensive drugs every year that do not have competition. 
Once that list is created, the secretary must negotiate prices with manufacturers on at least 25 drugs each year. That number increases to 30 drugs at five years, then 35 drugs at 10 years, and we're hoping that number will be higher, but it can't be lower. Just to give you a sense of how impactful this legislation could be, the top 25 most costly drugs in Medicare Part D make up 23% of all Part D spending. And once HHS negotiates a price with the manufacturer, that same negotiated price would also be available to any commercial insurance plan. So both seniors and American families will benefit from these lower prices. The legislation also requires HHS to negotiate with the makers of insulin every year, which should put an end to the astronomical price hikes we've seen on insulin in recent years. The bill would also create a new $2,000 out-of-pocket limit on prescription drug costs for Medicare Part D beneficiaries. It also reverses years of unfair price hikes above inflation on more than 8,000 drugs in Medicare. This legislation is going to lead to real savings for patients that will finally level the playing field for American consumers. My committee is taking action on HR3 this week, and I look forward to moving it through the House soon. The House has already passed legislation to help reduce drug costs by removing some of the barriers that prevent lower-priced generic drugs from coming to market. This package of bills passed out of my committee earlier this year, and they are focused on deterring brand drug manufacturers from delaying or impeding generic drug competition. And they also make it illegal for brand name and generic drug manufacturers to enter into anti-competitive agreements. Together, these bills are another important step in lowering the rising cost of prescription drugs nationwide. Americans are rightfully demanding action now. And unfortunately, while we passed this legislation out of the House, Senate Majority Leader McConnell refuses to bring the legislation up for a vote in the Senate. But we're not giving up. Making prescription drugs more affordable should be an issue that everyone, Republicans and Democrats, can support. And I look forward to continuing to work to lower costs for consumers. I want to thank all, especially NJ Spotlight and ARP New Jersey, for your continued advocacy on this critical issue and for the opportunity to update you on my work in Washington to make prescription drugs more affordable for all. And thank you all, and I hope you have a wonderful event. Thank you, Congressman Pallone. We can clap, and I'll tell him we clapped. So I'd like to invite the panel uh, to join us. I think you know who you are, hopefully. And as they're doing so, I want to introduce Lilo Staten, uh, who will be the moderator of the event. Uh, been a longtime uh, healthcare writer for NJ Spotlight, and, and uh, you know knows these issues as well as anybody. Not to mention, is a great moderator of these discussions. And again, I want to remind you: if you have questions, there's two options. We have index cards up on um, on the tables. If you have, you want to write it down, and we'll sort of circulate around the out, outer edges. But also, if you choose, uh, you can tweet questions again to prescription drug costs NJ with the tag of NJ Spotlight. Both of those are written on your programs uh, as reminders. Um, also, uh, before I forget, um, I think uh, surveys. Yeah, uh, there are also surveys on your on your tables, which we ask you to fill out before you leave. Uh, that feedback is really helpful for us uh, in in growing and improving these events and what works and what doesn't. So please um, do so. And you can either leave completed uh, ones uh, on the tables or you can leave them on, on the way out at the registration table. So I think we're ready. Are we ready to go?
Ready to go, Lilo? After nearly 100 of these, we are finely tuned machine, as you'll know. Yeah. Nothing um, like so, live theater. Yeah, here we go. So um, take it away, Lilo Satan. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Um, thank you very much for being here. This is clearly an important issue um, for everybody. Uh, I'm going to briefly introduce our panelists, then they're going to tell you a little bit about why or the work that they're doing in this, uh, in this area specifically. And then we're going to get into our questions. And um, you do have uh, cards, so please, if you have questions to share, please uh, write them out, and we will include, try to include them. So from my right, uh, Maura Collings Group, Healthcare Program Director from New Jersey Citizen Action. I'm just doing titles. They're going to tell you more. Um, oh, I actually switched it up. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Sen uh, no, no. We're good. It's just my brain. Sorry. Senator Troy Singleton uh, from, from the New Jersey Senate, uh, Community and Urban Affairs Committee, Chair of the Economic Growth Committee, and Vice Chair of the New Jersey State Senate. I didn't know that, actually. Is that true? Okay. Yeah, that, that looks really funny. Maybe that's Vice Chair of the Economic Growth Committee. There you go. Okay. I'm reading it wrong. Sorry. Got to clarify that. Okay. Lee Purvis, Director, Health Services Research, AARP Public Policy Institute. Uh, Kip Snyder, National Vice President, State Policy for Pharma, which is uh, the industry representative. He'll tell you about that. And last but not least, we have... Chris Hathaway, Vice President, State Affairs, America's Health Insurance Plans. So um, I'm going to pass the mic to Maura and let her tell you a little bit about your, her work in this field, and then we'll just go down the line. Um, thank you, Lilo, and thanks uh, for having us today. Um, I guess I would start by saying to the question, can we improve price transparency and control costs? That is a resounding absolute yes. Uh, and we can do that with action both at the federal and the state level. Um, but I think what we really need to understand is the real scope of the problem. If I asked for a show of hands here, how many of you know someone who has struggled to either fill a prescription, take their prescription medication as directed, or get access to those drugs in the first place, how many of you would raise your hands? We all know someone this has happened to. This is not a small problem. One in five New Jersey residents are estimated to go without essential drugs because of costs. And as we heard the doctor on the clip that was played earlier, Many of the hospitalizations result from people being unable to access those medications and not filling those prescriptions. So it's a huge problem, both in cost to patients as well as cost to the system. And Americans pay far more for our drugs than any other developed nation in the world. And why? Because the pharmaceutical companies can charge us whatever they want. We really need to put more balance into this system so that we, along with the rest of the world, are being treated more fairly when it comes to price. And price does not mean 
that we can't have innovation and we can't move forward and we can't do research. Pharmaceutical companies spend far more on advertising than on research. So there's lots of answers here. There's lots of things we can do, and we look forward to working with our partners to do that. We need to put patients back into this equation, and we need to balance the scales so that patients have access to the care they need, and when they do better, we all do better. Thank you. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, come on, it's Friday, good morning, come on. We don't have to be all mumbles today, let's just, come on, it's Friday. Um, first of all, it's, a, it's an honor and privilege to be here uh, with my friends from, from AARP, this esteemed panel, to have this important conversation. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Senator Troy Singleton. I represent the 7th Legislative District in Burlington County. I have the honor and privilege of representing about 226,000 people. And uh, one of the stories that we hear often is stories about individuals who have had challenges uh, meeting their prescription drug uh, needs. Um, and, and the uniqueness about those stories is that while they are all different, they are all the same. And, and the frustrating part uh, for any of us is the ability to try and find a, a pathway to making it so that those stories don't become more and more common. Um, so, and let me, let me say this upfront. So every time that I've had one of those calls come into my office and I've reached out to one of the representatives of whether it's one of the pharmaceutical manufacturing companies or their insurance carriers, we've been able to figure out a way to assist those individuals. Um, but frankly, it shouldn't be upon me as a state senator or any of my colleagues in public office, uh, federal, state, county, whatever, because of our positioning to be able to help someone along this path. It should be something that we could be able to figure out collectively as a group. Um, over the course of my almost entire tenure in the legislature, which began in 2011 in our uh, state assembly, um, I've looked at this issue and have, and have authored uh, a plethora of proposals to try and get at the root of this problem. Um, some have been more successful than others in moving along the path. Um, some others have been sort of stuck in, in sort of a, a quagmire for whatever reason. Um, but the, the work and initiative that, that needs to happen has to take place. The other thing I want to underscore as, as I move the mic along is that, quite frankly, I, I would love for this not to be an issue for a state legislator to tackle. Um, because in order for this to, to truly take hold in a significant way, um, we heard from Congressman Pallone, who's doing yeoman's work in Washington and trying to address it. We need a nationwide solution uh, to this problem. Um, as each state who is trying to be responsive to the needs of the, the constituencies of their respective, within their respective borders, um, we can only do but so much. Um, and, and we'll get a chance to talk to some of the, uh, the legal hurdles that have prevented us uh, from doing more. But I think if we, we take anything from this conversation today and from the words of, of Congressman Plone earlier, is that we have to engage more broadly and more systematically through a federal level to try and make sure we have a solution that covers our entire country. Um, that, if we do that, I think we'll all be better off in, in that regard. Um, but I look forward to this, this great panel and the conversation we'll have this morning and to some of the back and forth we hope to get from the, the audience. So thank you all. Thank you, Senator um, Lee. There, um, I just want to, before we go on to Lee, I just want to point out that that Senator raises a good point, um, and I have a personal story I'll share, a quick one. But after, but uh, 
I think there are ways that people can get these these medications paid for. Um, I think that the, one of the things that I'd like to explore today is sort of what are the bigger systemic reasons for that, that being the way that we're doing it now, and, and how do we move beyond that sort of patchwork response, if you will. So, sorry, Lee, please. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for having me here today. Um, I thought I'd take this time to kind of level set and give you a better idea of why AARP is so engaged on this issue. Uh, the simple answer is the prices. A lot of people don't realize that back in around 1990, there was a huge amount of uproar about a drug that came on the market that cost $10,000 per year. We are now talking about drugs with prices that exceed $1 million per year. So we've basically gone from the price of a reasonably priced used car, which I think a lot of people might say is already too much, to buying an entire building in Trenton, New Jersey. And we're often not talking about prices that people are having to pay just once. A lot of the people that AARP represents are facing these types of prices every year for the rest of their lives. Next slide. The other thing that has really caught our attention is unfortunately what we're seeing right now is just the tip of the iceberg. We are seeing more and more drugs coming on the market with remarkably high prices, and we're also seeing manufacturers focusing on drugs that can command high prices. So things like orphan drugs that are designed to treat populations of less than 200,000 or biologics, which are drugs that are derived from uh, living organisms as opposed to traditionally derived chemical-based drugs. We're also seeing those drugs being used by more and more people. And then, of course, something else AARP has been tracking for quite a while now is the prices. Even if they come on the market with a high price, unfortunately, that's not the end of the story. We have been tracking the prices of widely used prescription drugs since 2004. And unfortunately, the story has remained pretty much the same. Um, our most recent analysis took a look at 754 widely used prescription drugs and found that on average, the price for one widely used prescription drug is now approaching $20,000 per year. We also took a look at what that price would have been had, inflation, or had the price stayed with inflation and found that it would have been close to $12,500 lower had the price increases stayed with inflation. Next slide, please. The other thing that, of course, we are very cognizant of is the fact that our members are very vulnerable to prescription drug prices. <laughs> Older Americans use a lot of prescription drugs. In fact, they use more prescription drugs than any other segment of the population. On average, Medicare Part D enrollees use more than more, four prescription drugs per month. I think another misperception is that a Medicare beneficiary has a lot of resources. Unfortunately, that's not the case. The median income for Medicare beneficiaries is just over $26,000 per year. And a lot of them have very limited financial resources. One in four have less than $15,000 in savings. In other words, this is not a population that can afford to absorb the impact of high and growing prescription drug prices. And unfortunately, that's something they're facing every day. Next slide. But I think the other thing that I would really like for everyone to take away from this and something that AARP recognizes is that high prescription drug prices are not something that are only affecting patients. Absolutely everyone is affected by high prescription drug prices. You can be affected by the patient at the pharmacy counter, but if you have health coverage, your health care premiums and health care costs are going towards paying for high prescription drug prices. You're also affected as a taxpayer. Your taxes go toward public programs like Medicare and Medicaid that pay high prescription drug prices. So in other words, regardless of whether you're taking a prescription drug yourself, every single person in this room is paying high prescription drug prices. Next slide. Uh, you heard mention of our Stop Rx Greed campaign. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, I thought I'd give you a quick look at the type of work that is involved. 
AARP supports a wide variety of solutions at the state and the federal level, things like allowing Medicare to negotiate for prescription drugs, trying to limit out-of-pocket costs for Medicare beneficiaries, improving generic competition, importation. It's a laundry list. Um, but I wanted to give you an idea of exactly how much work is involved. Never in my life did I think I would be working for a place that had people dressed up like T-Rexes, or RX T-Rexes, and run around on the hill, but that's the type of work that we're doing. This is an issue that's incredibly important to us and to our members, and so um, I look forward to talking more about that in the later discussion. Um, Kip Snyder, tell us a little. I know this is a concern for the industry as well. So. Sure. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be here. It's great for me to uh, be back in New Jersey. This is a, uh, a state that is of tremendous importance to us. Um, depending on how you do the the math and the analysis, the industry um, supports um, uh, about 300,000 jobs here, tremendous amount of economic input. If you look at the um, top 20 largest pharmaceutical manufacturers in the world, 14 of them have actual physical footprints here um, in New Jersey. So um, we're here to talk about uh, cost and pricing, and, and we should, and I welcome the opportunity. I do have a few slides, but one thing I like to do in having these conversations is to start with where I think we can all agree. So if you could go to the next slide. Um, I don't think there would be disagreement even um, among the industry's biggest critics that we have produced incredible breakthroughs and that the science um, is really is really coming through. We have taken, um, for example, HIV-AIDS, which was once effectively a death sentence, and transformed it into a manageable chronic disease. We have essentially cured hepatitis C. We have made huge breakthroughs in increases in survival rates in various types of cancer. We have a long way to go. Um, we, have, uh, we have worked and poured billions and billions and billions of dollars, for example, in trying to come up with uh, cures for Alzheimer's, which has a real um, potential to have a huge fiscal impact on us, and, and it is elusive. And you see a couple of notable examples up here. So um, if you go to the next slide, and if you'll indulge me for just a second, I would like you to pretend in your mind that it is uh, 1965, and maybe many weren't even born um, at that time, and you know, say the, the Beatles are on the Ed Sullivan Show and, uh, and President Johnson is signing Medicare and Medicaid into law, pick your favorite metaphor. But if it's 1965 and you were to imagine United States healthcare spending and think of it in like a, in a round, in a pie graph, and you were to ask the question in 1965, of all US healthcare spending, what percentage goes toward prescription drugs? Well, 1965, that answer would have been about 10%. So if you fast forward to today, in 2019, and you ask what percentage of US healthcare spending is on prescription drugs for retail drugs, that answer is about 10%. It's a little bit higher. It goes up to 14% if you include utilization in other channels, like in hospitals or in doctor's offices. If you go to the next slide, if you, if you look at what the government actuaries at CMS predict that that percentage is going to be in the out years, at the far right side of the slide, it's going to be about 14%. And the key is that when you think of that, that pie graph and that, that piece of the pie that's 14%, that piece of the pie, I would argue, is the one that is best positioned to make the entire pie smaller over time. Why? Because it can result in huge decreases in some of the other larger pieces of the pie, such as hospitalization. 
And if you break down the 14% and you look at the percentage points, you ask about the dollars, seven of the 14 points in terms of dollars would go to the branded pharmaceutical industry. Uh, three of the 14 would go to generic manufacturers and about four would go to middlemen and supply chain. And I'm sure we're gonna talk more about that um, today. So I think this number surprises folks when, when they see these numbers. They say, well, how can that be? You know, we're seeing all this stuff in the news about drug prices and you've got EpiPen and a few years ago you had this pharma bro in the hoodie, you know, doing these terrible things. Well, I wanna just give you two basic ideas um, to, to start off the conversation today about why this is, why we've been at this relative steady state over time. If you go to the next slide, the first one is generic competition. Right, so this is the story not told. 90% of all prescriptions filled in the United States now are filled for generics, right? You know the, the way it works, a, a, a medicine goes off patent, and particularly with large blockbuster medicines, competition rushes in, prices go into a free fall. You know, you see the stories in the newspapers all the time about the expensive new gene therapy. The story that you don't see right, is when, you know, say Lipitor goes off patent and all of a sudden spending is a small fraction of what it once was. So generics are really important. And then the second key idea, if you go to the next slide, is this idea of rebates, right? And we're gonna talk about this for sure. You see all kinds of data points that are out there that look like these, you know, they're the very large numbers. They are almost invariably based on list prices. And we have a system that has changed and evolved quite a bit. And there is now a growing gap between the list price or the sticker price and the actual price that is paid. And the reason um, has a lot to do with these entities, PBMs or pharmacy benefit managers. The, reason, the raison d'etre is to uh, negotiate huge rebates with pharmaceutical manufacturers. They're very effective at doing that. And once you look at the data and you back out the rebates and you look at actual uh, price increases on a net basis, the numbers tell a way, way different story. The Council of Economic Advisors just last week um, issued a report doing a one-year price comparison, price comparison from uh, August of uh, 2017 to August of 2018, and found that across the, the, the U.S. healthcare system, and this is based on government data from the, uh, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that prices across the system actually decreased by seven-tenths of a percent on a net basis. And you don't have to necessarily take my word for it. You can look at the PBM's own data. Some of it is up there on the screen because they like to brag about the extent to which they have held down overall spending. So you can see in 2018, there are some relatively modest percentages. So I know we're gonna get into all this. I wanna just conclude um, the opening uh, remarks by saying I'm not up here to say that everything is great and we don't have problems. Um, we have issues with, with spending um, on pharmaceuticals and medical costs in this country. Um, but I do think that, um, that the, the, the data matter quite a bit. We have solutions that we're working on at Pharma that we think can help address the problem. And I'll talk about some of those um, a little bit further in. Thanks. Sorry, thank you. Chris, please. Good morning, everyone. I'm Chris Hathaway uh, with America's Health Insurance Providers or Plans. And we are um, out based out of DC, but I live in Camden County. So it was nice just to come up uh, here this morning. Uh, appreciate that. Um, America's Health Insurance Plans, we are the health insurance providers, carriers, payers, whatever, you know, um, 
whatever you want to call us. And what I wanted to do, I think most of us, we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't have slides, so we'll just pull that up in a moment here. Um, and again, we just want to kind of do a, a quick level set uh, as we do that. Um, we can go ahead and move to the next one and the next one. All right, great, thank you. Um, so this is our uh, what we call our healthcare dollar. So what we do is we look at all of our carriers and we do an analysis of what we're, where we're spending our money, uh, where we're spending our premium dollars, your premium dollars. And what we're looking at is that the number one um, biggest bucket for that premium dollar is on prescription drugs. Um, and that is over anything that we pay the hospitals. Uh, that's over what we pay um, your doctor visits into those um, doctor offices and uh, any of our other administrative fees. So uh, we just kind of want to set the, the floor, if you will, to kind of this is um, one of our number one priority uh, at AHIP is really trying to pull these costs down because our uh, priority is to get these uh, policies to you in an affordable manner um, because, I mean, as, uh, you know, the best of drugs aren't going to be helpful when you can't pay for them at the end of the day. Um, so we'll go ahead and switch to the next one. So we have seen, I think, um, you know, I'm not going to belabor, I think we've all been talking about the high cost of drugs. Um, we're looking at 2020 an estimated $600 billion. Uh, that's unsustainable. So we're going to talk today, I think, about some solutions. Um, we've got, we were seeing a lot of states take really um, active steps in progressing different ways to uh, push back on where we're seeing this drug cost go. Um, so we got these slides from the New Jersey Association of Health Plans. This is a great, terrific organization based out of Trenton. Um, and what they did is they compared the Medicaid dollar here spend on drugs in New Jersey. And so in 2011, we look at nine cents on the dollar going for drugs. And if you look to the next slide, uh, in 2019, it then pops to 20. Now, in New Jersey, we have uh, more expensive hospitals, so it's just a little slightly different here in New Jersey as it would from the national average. Uh, but again, that increase is uh, pretty staggering when you're looking at the Medicaid population. Uh, and as we mentioned, um, as Lee had mentioned, I think, you know, drug costs in general uh, impact everybody. And these are taxpayer dollars going to Medicaid programs, so we want to be able to address these as, as well as we can. Um, I, you know, I think this slide, uh, as we mentioned earlier, talks wonders about that orange is how much, um, this is from a Vox um, journalist study, and the orange bucket is, or the orange circle kind of illustrates what um, these pharma companies spend on research and development. Um, I'm sorry, on sales and marketing, and the blue circles are what they spend on, on R&D. So we're seeing kind of more money spent on the sales and marketing than the actual R&D. Um, we certainly can get into it uh, at a later point, but from a carrier's perspective, you know, we are held to spending at least 85 cents of every uh, dollar that we have basically going back to the customer. It's called a medical loss ratio. Um, so, you know, I think there's, there's a big difference there in, in how we look at the business models. Um, you know, I, we don't want to go into too many details, but we do see a lot of gaming of the market that I think we're looking uh, to the federal folks to see if they can fix, and some of the steps, and some of the states, excuse me, are stepping in as well. Um, we won't go through all of these, but just know that there are a lot of variations that we're seeing some of the pharmaceutical companies taking um, that we'd like to to see an end to uh, in gaming the system that we're that we're currently in. 
Um, I think uh, also what we're looking at is, you know, some of these really kind of outrageous and egregious behaviors that we'd really kind of like to highlight and kind of see if we can flesh out ways to stop it. Um, I think, you know, in the recent opiate crisis, which is still going on, which is a huge concern of our plans, um, you know, we're looking at how do we make sure that we can get naloxone uh, into everybody's hands. And when we're seeing that not only um, are these pharmaceutical companies providing those opiates, but then also driving up costs of, you know, life-saving drugs, I think that kind of gets our goat. So that's kind of where we start to start step in and really try to push um, everything we can to see some regulations to stop those behaviors. Oh, we can get past that one. Um, so we don't want to just talk about, you know, the issues in general and, and the problems. We want to talk about solutions. How do we take those next steps? How do we figure out um, we can get the cost down? Um, you know, at HayHip, we look at, we want to drive real competition. As we mentioned, um, generics is, you know, a big key to that. How do we drive more generic um, into the markets. Uh, we want to look at understanding this open pricing. We want to understand some uh, transparency. Um, the state here, uh, the regulators here obviously have a very good insight to what we do as far as carriers are concerned. Anytime we raise um, our rates or change our premiums, the state has to take a look at that and understand why and check off that that's okay to do. Um, so we'd like to see a little bit more transparency over pharmaceutical companies. We're not seeing that now currently. Um, and then there's, I think, the next horizon where we do agree um, with pharma is how do we pay for value? Let's make sure that the drugs that are coming out um, actually, you know, let's pay for performance then. That is where the entire industry is going. So if you've got a drug and it's working really well, let's you know, pay for that instead of maybe a drug that's not working so well. So I think there are some places that we can certainly agree to. And lastly, these are just some um, ideas on how to address some solutions. Um, other states have you know, required pharmaceutical companies to provide them, um, if you're going to raise your drug pricing by an X percent, explain to us why. And so we've had, um, there's a couple states here, I think there's 13 in total that have variations to drug transparency laws. Um, there's also ones that limit the schemes to gaming the system we can certainly move into. Uh, we also can talk a little bit more about making sure when the pharmaceutical reps go into the providers, let's get the providers and the hospitals involved and under, for them to understand how much these drugs are costing. Um, and then we've also seen AG as well. Here in New Jersey, the AG has, has joined up on a lawsuit with a couple of, of generic companies that have been price gouging. And so I think we're looking at you know, making sure that all facets of the states can really take part of, of pushing back on these drugs cost. So I'll stop there and turn it back. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, everybody. Um, before we go on, I just I want to share one brief personal story about um, my mother, who always manages to work her way into these events. Um, but it, she was diagnosed uh, last year with um, multiple myeloma. And I think this is a really good example of how the system is broken. Um, and uh, she was prescribed Revlimid, which um, is is infamous or famous for a lot of things, um, especially in this state. Um, and she was quoted, uh, she got a call after dinner um, when she was watching the news, very vulnerable time for someone who's 85 sitting there. She got a call one night from, I guess it was an insurance, someone from the insurance, uh, from her Medicare provider. And um, they said, okay, your copay for this is going to be $2,000 a month. And she almost dropped the phone. I mean, she was just astounded. Um, now, she probably could afford to pay that, but she was just 
oh my goodness, I can't possibly pay that. You know, that's just way too much. That was her response. As soon as I spoke to the people the next day, it took less than 15 minutes for them to connect me with the company, uh, a, a nonprofit, um, Health Well Foundation, never heard of them before. Um, they provided us a $10,000 grant to cover the cost of her treatment for multiple months within 15 minutes. I mean, it was easier than, I mean, I've ne I could never imagine that getting $10,000 was that easy. Um, and it just struck me as I hung up the phone. They, I don't even think they asked for documentation. I think they just asked me for some numbers. It struck me as completely backwards that, that, that we have a situation where you set the price so high, but then you can immediately be granted money from somebody else. And it just it seemed to me like an extremely broken system. Um, but with that as a backdrop, um, as we're listening to this, to, to everybody's intro, I notice it, it changes the numbers and the, the statistics can change depending on what, how you're talking about, whether you're talking about price, whether you're talking about spending, whether you're talking about premium drugs, um, when you, when you look at premiums versus the full, um, the full sort of spectrum with generics, you get different reads. I'm just curious, I think, Lee, I'm going to start with you on this, but I'm curious, when we talk about this, how do we think about sort of the big picture and not get, I mean, I feel like we almost get lost sometimes in sticker price and that maybe the bigger question is what is the cost to the system and how do we sort of start thinking about the broader impacts of this? Can I, can I ask you to start and then... Sure, and that's others. actually a, a question that we get often in reaction to the price reports where we are tracking the prices of the products. And the pushback is, well, if you look at spending, if you look at generics, if you look at, and it, it does come down to the question that you are asking. Um, I think spending can be complicated because the reality is if the price of something gets so high that no one can afford it anymore, you will see that impact in spending. And it's also very difficult for us to go back to our members and say, oh, but you look at the overall trends, everything's great, because that's not their experience. So in our opinion, we need to be looking at the experience of people and not these large overarching numbers. And if you take this into account and this into account, then things don't look so bad. Because to our members, that is not acceptable. They want to see real action on the prices of the products. And that is what matters to them. Kip, do you want to take... I'm just curious because you're talking about what your numbers showed, showed. I mean, when you talk about that 10%, 10 to 14%, tell us a little bit about that, why that matters. Sure. And, and let me talk about the data because if I'm, you know, if I'm one of you sitting out in the audience, I'm seeing numbers that look starkly different. So let's, let's unpack that. That a little bit yeah, so the, the, again, 10%, the, the 10 to 14% numbers that we use, that's government data, national health expenditure data, and that's across all payers. Right? And it's, it's definitely true that for some payers, particularly commercial payers, that that percentage is going to be higher than 14%. And for other payers, it's going to be lower. In Medicaid, for example, because state Medicaid programs receive tremendous um, discounts under the federal Medicaid rebate statute, including price protection for any increases that are above the consumer price index, that number for Medicaid is somewhere between 5 and 6% of overall Medicaid spending is on, on Rx. Um, and I, you know, I'm very familiar with the, the slide with the, the dollar up there with the 23.3% number. Again, that's based on, that's based on, um, on, uh, on full price 
not net price. And that's also, you know, there are different markets for pharmaceuticals, right? So in the commercial market that's driving that number, you have, for example, a younger, generally healthier patient population than, say, Medicare. And as a result, on a proportional basis, drug spending tends to be higher um, proportionally for that population as opposed to, to Medicare. So th the numbers um, matter quite a bit. There are lots of numbers being thrown around. You know, I also hear the statistic on what the industry spends quite a bit, right? So just to, to give you the actual breakdown of the numbers, the industry last year spent over $90 billion on research and development. The industry spent about $28 billion on marketing and promotion. Of that $28 billion, about six was on direct-to-consumer advertising. So I, I do take issue with any any claims that the industry is spending more on, on advertising than, than on research and development. Um, the R&D number is more than tenfold, the DTC number. Um, the numbers get conflated and, and mixed around a little bit because in the accounting world, there's something called SG&A, Selling General and Administrative Expense. And our publicly traded companies report those numbers to the Securities and Exchange Commission in annual filings, but they go way beyond sales and marketing. They include all sorts of other administrative costs, and that's one thing that I think tends to skew the numbers. But I think it also depends on what medications we're talking about, right? Because it seems to me that the numbers are vastly different depending on on you know, where a medication is in the process, for example, whether it's new to the market, whether it's not, whether it's a, a big market or not. Um, I'm curious why some drugs are more expensive. Um, is that, I, I, I'm curious more, or Senator Singleton, if, if you hear about certain medications more than others. I was struck when, when Senator Pallone said um, that this was the issue, there was another press conference that I covered, um, at which he said, this is the issue he hears most about, um, and not just from seniors. I'm wondering if that's also your case, and then if there's certain medications that come up in those conversations a lot. Uh, first of all, I think uh, Congressman Pallone just got a promotion, and Cory Booker and Bob Menendez's heart just sank at the same time. Yes. <laughs> I did that the other day, too. Sorry. I, I make, I've made that Freudian slip once or twice myself, so it's all good. <laughs> Um, I, I, want, I want to answer that question, but I, I think for, for all of us here, especially all of us um, who don't have the fancy titles, who don't come from uh, a background in doing this, I think the question that Lilo asked about the numbers is the crux of the, of the initial crux of the problem. I, I, I believe wholeheartedly that, the, that both of the, my, all the individuals to my right have data that, can, that articulates their point and, and talks about why we're in the situation that we're in. And as was pointed out, it seems confusing and you hear this number and that number and it bounces around. One of the things that we've tried to do in, in, in the legislature and the proposals is, is actively making its way through is to create transparency in just that so that we don't we don't have to, to, to guess or hear from this person or that person what numbers matter. We want to say, all right, this is what we want to know when it comes to pricing. How does who what is the charge? How much did it charge you to make it? How much are you charging somebody else to buy it? and start looking at it from a very black and white perspective. Because as payers, as all of us as payers, we can understand when someone tells us what the, the list price is and then what I'm paying, right? But when you, when you start adding other things in it, conflating the conversation about, well, measuring this and measuring that, then that's when this level of exasperation comes in and frustration, quite frankly. 
And that's what that's what I hear. That's what I hear in my office and when I'm out in the community talking to folks. And exasperation and frustration with the, the the escalating prices that folks are paying. And 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 when you when you think about it in that in that construct, no matter what the the analogy is or the story behind it, at the end of the day, someone is is reaching in their pocket and having to make that payment. And frankly, there are too many of us in New Jersey and around this country are finding it increasingly difficult to reach in that pocket and make that payment. So we start with a position of trying to enhance greater transparency in in the process. We want to have an understanding. And I I do so hope we get to the conversation around our uh, the the PBM piece, because as I've looked at this and and I, I hold um, no one as a white knight when it comes to this, whether that's the manufacturer, the insurer, or the PBM, because everyone has a level of culpability to all of us as payers as to why we're paying more. And that is what we've tried to focus on from a public policy standpoint, is not trying to pick which baby's cutest amongst the three to say, all right, not they're not the villain, but to try and understand and say, let's just add an era of transparency to this process, common sense, easy to understand, transparency. Once we do that, then we can start beginning the accountability process that is necessary to make sure we're actively decreasing the prices that people are paying. Because right now, as I said, most folks don't know what goes into that bill that they're paying and why they're paying it, but they know it just keeps increasing. So that's the conversation I hear, whether I'm out and knocking doors or at community events. They say, they say Senator, we need to figure out a way to, to lower the cost. Because I'm paying more than I paid the date the year before and two years before that for drugs that I need. And, and that's where when we ultimately get to this conversation around value-based uh, medicine as well, because that's where the healthcare model is moving, period, along all other spectrums. That's where you'll find commonality in, in, in areas of support amongst payers, pharmaceutical companies, and ultimately the best delivery of service. So that conversation comes up all the time, but it has to start with us having a more transparent process because um, at varying degrees along it, it is opaque and as murky as anything you can imagine. And, and as that murkiness grows, dollars get lost in that shuffle and it costs us all more in order to get the drugs that we need to live and move forward. Sorry. I would just say, you know, the numbers get, can get real murky and we can all, you know, put out numbers that will support our positions. But what I think gets lost in this is, you know, what's the field we're playing on? The field we're playing on is that we pay more than any other nation in the world for our drugs. So I don't care how you cut the statistics, that fact remains and it's unchanged. We're paying far too much and we need to fix the problem. I think the other thing that's not been mentioned um, that's important is that as patients, as Americans, as taxpayers, we pay in the beginning, in the middle, in the end, right? In the beginning, our tax dollars, huge amounts of our tax dollars through NIH are funding research. And that's taxpayer money. All well spent, good stuff, but you know, the research is coming from NIH and they are starting a lot of that. We pay in the middle because as taxpayers, we support our public programs, our state health benefits plan, Medicaid, 
all of the other public programs chip. So when prescriptions cost more, those programs cost more. And we pay in the end. And it's not just as insured consumers. We still have millions of Americans without health care in this country. And if you don't have health care, you are paying that list price. And if you're in a benefit plan that doesn't cover that particular drug, you are paying list price. You ever been to a pharmacy and they say, oh, I'm sorry, your plan doesn't cover that? That'll be $240. I just heard a friend tell me that story this morning. So I think against that backdrop, our statistics are not as important as the actual experience of consumers. Thank you. I'm struck as you're saying that by a story I did the other day um, on uh, the Urban Institute and Commonwealth Foundation did an analysis of eight different options of uh, healthcare reform ideas. And when you look at the investment up front, it's staggering. I mean, taxpayer dollar, and they were talking about federal taxpayer dollars, staggering, staggering numbers. But in some of the scenarios that they modeled, um, the cost to cons the, the, the what they called the healthcare cost, the, the what um, consumers, what businesses, what state governments spent actually came down. And it was interesting to me because I'm thinking about those other state programs that we spend money on here. Um, you know, the, 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 a, uh, the senior gold, the prescription programs, I'm thinking about un, uncompensated care, which is, you know, partially, partially um, medic, uh, pharmacy, obviously. Um, we've gotten a couple questions here about prices and sort of, so what is the list, how do you define list price and how does, how do, how are prices, how do you get different prices set? Um, I was struck, I think Medicare, I read pays an average price, it's sort of an average market price, I'm not quite understanding it, but how, can, I don't know if I, I think the question is for you, Kip, can you explain a little bit about what the different prices are and who's paying what. And then I'd like to also talk next about um, the role of some of these big pharmacy, um, I guess they're PBMs now, Express Scripts, folks like that, and, and the role that they play because they now have an enormous footprint in this, in this uh, equation, right? There we go. So the, it, it is complex, but let me try to break down the, the basic nuts and bolts here. So there is um, a list price, and there's a little bit of alphabet soup here, but I, 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 uh, I abhor acronyms, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the actual words um, to try to make it clearer. So the industry does set list prices, um, and, and list prices are certainly relevant. The key list price descriptor, it's called WAC, which stands for Wholesale Acquisition Cost. The issue is, and then there, there are other, Lilo, as you point out, there are other um, prices that are out there that are relevant for, for government reimbursement. There's something called average manufacturer price, which drives the Medicaid program rebates. There's a, a price that's average sales price, which is what's utilized by the, the Part B program in, in Medicare. The key is that the system has evolved in this sort of strange way based on um, various incentives. And we sort of have this, um, in some ways, Byzantine pricing system now, where although manufacturers do set the WAC, the wholesale acquisition cost, the list price, 
that price is less relevant to what's actually paid than it used to be. Um, you know, metaphor I've heard is like, you know, paying, paying the whack, paying the actual list price is akin to like, you know, paying the price that you see on the back of your hotel room door. It's very, very often not paid. And because of incentives that are in the system, um, we've had this, um, these changes take place. And there have been some, some comments made about what the patient is paying. And I think that's an area where, where we can agree. We, we focus on what the patient is paying. So keep in mind that a patient with commercial insurance, it's not the whack that is necessarily um, defining what the patient is pay, paying. The, what the patient is paying when he or she has commercial insurance is a matter of the benefit design set by the insurance company. Um, I think what potentially is most unfair is that you're seeing more and more and more cost sharing in the prescription drug benefit relative to say medical or hospitalization benefits. So patients are being, um, being required to pay more and more out of pocket for their drugs relative to other um, pieces of the, the medical pie, so to speak. And we're seeing more and more use of um, deductibles Right, you have to meet your deductible and pay all that before the benefit kicks in. You're seeing more coinsurance, which is a percentage payment. You know, paying like 25% instead of a flat dollar copay, $10 or $25. And here's the key: is that in in far too many instances, when the patient is paying on a claim in the deductible or a coinsurance claim, and let's say that the the list price. Is, uh, is $100, but there's a $40 rebate, so the net price is 60. In way, way, way too many cases, the patient is paying the full 100 instead of the 60. And so that's a huge problem. Um, something that we support, a key reform that we support at Pharma, is to make sure that those rebates and discounts that go to the PBMs and the insurance companies get passed on to the patient. Sorry, some of that is a factor of whether or not you have insurance, right? So you're going to pay, even if you're paying percentage as the as an insured person, you're you're likely to pay a higher base price, to use common terms, as someone without insurance, correct? I, I'm just saying you're you're likely to pay if you don't have insurance, you're starting at a higher price point, right? Yeah, there, there's no doubt that that uninsured patients they may walk into the pharmacy right. and be paying based on the full freight, the list price. There's a lot that the industry does in terms of programs to help um, those patients without insurance. You know, we do have this patchwork system where you really, when you get into these problems, you really have to look at what type of insurance does the patient have, um, what's going on, and what are the benefits that are available. Chris, I feel like I need to let you talk a little bit about this because these are, I mean, in a, you know, I understand from an insurer's perspective, you've got, your job is to control the cost. That's what you've been charged with doing. So, yeah, how, how are you approaching this problem? Thank you. Um, you know, healthcare costs, it's a finite balloon. Right. So if you're if you're going to sit there and and, and increase costs, um, we can either is this a little bit better. There we go. Sorry about that. Um, so what we want to make sure is that we have choices that we work with your employers on. Do we want to have a higher premium 
or do we want to have higher deductibles? And so that's what we work with your employers on, what is gonna be best for you um, from the, and usually that's your human resources department that wants to look at that. Um, we actually have very stringent requirements um, as carriers about what we do with our premiums. Um, we have to meet stringent solvency requirements, making sure that, you know, carriers don't go bankrupt, and we want to make sure that we bring the premiums down as low as possible. Um, we also have to meet, as I mentioned earlier, the, the medical loss requirements. So we work with the state um, quite a bit to illustrate you know, these different options. We offer those to the employers and say, this is the lowest we can get for your premiums. If you get a lower premium, you're gonna have a higher deductible. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a balloon, you pull in one and it's gonna come out the other. So um, you know, it's, it's not something that, that we have um, appreciative that, that yes, these uh, healthcare costs are increasing so much and it is increasing your premiums um, or it's increasing your deductible and that's something we, you know, what we're trying to do is push down the levers as much as possible to bring down the costs. Um, that is critically, um, you know, one of our biggest jobs and, and we can certainly, I don't know if you wanted me to follow up with PBMs and how we utilize those we, or rebates. I feel like that's an important <laughs> part, yeah, and I, I do, yes, let's talk about PBMs briefly. Um, so the pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs is, is getting a lot of attention recently, um, but they've been around for quite some time. Um, just kind of a, a high level explanation of what these contractors do. So for healthcare carriers, you guys know we have very small ones, we have very big ones, we have national, we have regional, um, competition is good within carriers. You want the various sizes, um, but we have a lot of requirements that we do and some of the smaller carriers and even some of the larger carriers can't do all the different functions that we need to do to make sure that you get your drugs properly. Um, so we use PBMs for a myriad of reasons. Uh, we use them for adherence programs. So we make sure that if you, uh, if we notice in your records that you have not been taking your insulin drugs or your high blood pressure, um, we have, <clears throat> excuse me, an adherence program uh, that someone will either call you or text you and say, hey, what's going on? Uh, talk to you about that issue. That's, that's called an adherence program. Um, we utilize them to do our mail order. That's a complex issue um, to deal with uh, different getting you know, the drug from point A to point B. Um, they deal all of our mail orders. You can, the biggest issue that we use them for is because if you're a smaller carrier, or even if you're a larger carrier, um, you know, drugs is a commodity. And so the more you can go to them, to a pharmaceutical company and say, I've got you know, 10 million buyers, um, I wanna get you know, X amount on whatever drug it is, they can pull down that price and really kind of ratchet that down because they have so many buyers. And so that's why a lot of carriers would join PBMs because PBMs will actually um, pull together all the various carriers as to put pressure onto that manufacturer to bring those drugs down. Um, there are three large PBMs, but there's, there's more than, I think, 30 or 40 of them out there. Uh, and we utilize different ones for different services. Um, I did talk to one carrier in California. They have 4 million members. It's a fairly large carrier. Um, they were doing everything in-house, and then they went back and looked and said, you know what, the, you know, join in a PBM, I can get lower drug costs because they have more um, buying power, uh, if you will, to bring in uh, lower cost drugs. So that's kind of the role. Uh, of the PBM and, and what we utilize them for. Um, oh, sorry, did you? No, I was just gonna say before you, I'm gonna ask you to pass the mic to Lee because I know she wants to, but before you do, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, we've gotten a, quest, a question uh, online um, from Twitter uh, from somebody, and this, it just strikes me as odd. What about when in, an insurer deal, deals 
and insurers deal with a PBM cuts off the insurer's access to generic or other lower cost drugs. What would, uh, why would they do that? I would say they don't. Um, we have very stringent contracts with our PBMs. Um, I think our, most of our carriers are very sophisticated um, companies and they look at those contracts very, very carefully. Um, they have things laid out as far as how they're going to pay them. There's different ways to pay PBMs. Um, if you want to just pay them, you don't want to deal with, with kind of ebbs and flows. You can pay them a per member per month type of function. Uh, if you want to tell them, hey, if you can, um, you know, if we contract that you're going to bring down a drug 20%, but you can bring it down, you know, 25%, then you can get a little extra cut from it. So there's different reasons um, and different ways to pay for those. And, you know, I think from that perspective, it would just depend on that specific contract. They all kind of vary. Okay. Thank you. Lee, do you want to go back to cost? Uh, I think the one thing that I, I would hope everyone would be mindful of is the reason that cost sharing is high is because the prices of the products that are being covered is high. Um, you would not have a $2,000 copay if the drug was not $100,000. Um, and the idea that there are complaints that cost sharing is too high, saying some percentage of the cost sharing is too high, what are you saying about the, the overall price of that product? Because it is being paid. It may not be being paid by the patient, but it's being paid by the insurance. And that's when you start seeing these premiums start to creep up. Um, and, and that is something that unfortunately is very common under Medicare Part D in the sense we really have seen an explosion in coinsurance. And coinsurance can get as high as 50% under, under that benefit for non-preferred brands, which is a huge amount of money if you think back to the financial characteristics of um, the people that we represent. So, and that unfortunately is kind of like a canary in the mine because Part D is just drugs. So what you're seeing plans doing there to try to keep premiums down is really something you're going to see overflowing into the larger market. And we are seeing that already in employer sponsor coverage where now we have four tier formularies, four different tiers of, of um, drugs that are covered under the list of drugs that are covered. And it's just getting increasingly complex and it's mirroring what we've already seen under Medicare Part D. Um, and something else I wanted to kind of point out also sure. in your context of the going back to cost sharing, the reason that manufacturers are willing to pay $10,000 for your mother's drug is because that $10,000 is a drop in the bucket compared to what your insurer will now be paying for the rest of the cost of that product, which again goes back to the premium. So going back to squeezing the balloon and you know how all this stuff works together, again, it's, it's being built into healthcare premiums and that's why we're seeing the costs we're seeing for the patient. That is actually a great segue to this question um, that it's kind of, it's, I think it's for Kip. Um, and I think it, it's a good segue into this kind of, this question of how we got here and what's behind the prices a little bit, if you can take us on that, on that journey, um, if you don't mind. But the question is, um, <laughs> wouldn't there be a less need for rebates and grants if the prices came down? And I think that's the same point. I mean, so, so what is behind the price? Well, the, the, as, I, as I mentioned, we, we have this system that has evolved in this sort of strange way. And um, Chris had mentioned the way that PBMs get paid and how they can be paid on different bases. Um, one thing I want to be clear on, PBMs for the most part have been paid under the system based on list price. And we don't think that, that that's the right way to go. We think that's one of the huge problems. You know, the Trump administration actually proposed a rule earlier this year that would have really uh, been a sea change for the system. It would have um, disallowed the way manufacturers currently pay rebates back to, to PBMs. It would have resulted in a complete 
um, blow up, so to speak, for the system. And pharma supported that change. And we submitted extensive comments on this, talking about um, the problems with basing this payment system on PBMs. There are a lot of entities that are out there as part of this complex system. We believe that PBMs should be paid based on the service that they provide, and they do provide a meaningful, valuable service as opposed to um, being compensated based on list price. Go ahead. I'm going to come back to you. Sorry. Just, just to keep it really simple, I feel like what's getting lost here, yes, PBM reform and New Jersey's done some of that uh, is good, but everything is based on the foundation of the wholesale acquisition cost, which is set by pharma. So if we set the wholesale acquisition cost at $10,000 instead of $5,000, what does it matter if the PBM is getting us a 20% rebate or a 25% rebate? Let's just lower the wholesale acquisition cost like every other country in the world. And we can start at a much better place and then fix those other things. But let's not lose who and where the foundation gets set. We're already out of the ballpark when we start talking about PBMs. I feel like, I feel like, or just, sorry, this delay is really funny. Sorry. Um, it's like an international call. Um, I, I feel like, the, I, I want to talk a little bit though about how these prices are, where they come from, what's behind them. Because, um, you know, my understanding is what you're paying for is not necessarily the drug that is in front of you, right? You're paying for a lot more than that through those prices. You're paying for, as I understand it, the 90% of drugs that don't make it through the trial process because this is science and that's the way science works, right? I mean, you, you have to make a lot of attempts in order to get it right. So tell us a little bit about that if you can, Kip. And I'm also curious how I mean, my understanding is globally there's been a big shift in, in you know, we're, we're talking a lot about looking overseas to overseas models, and we're going to get in a minute to, to Senator Pallone's bill and what that involves, but a lot of this comes from we're looking to overseas models, and I'm curious, before we go there, what have we seen in that sort of global market, if you can? So th there's a lot that goes into to setting prices, and there are various markets for different pharmaceutical products around the world, and there's huge variation, as you point out, Lilo, in, in, in pricing. Um, a lot goes into, um, into setting prices for these medications. Part of it, sure, is the, is the cost of failures. Part of it is the economic situation in the country. You know, the, the, the United States has a higher ability to pay than, say, less developed countries, um, of course. So we see a lot that, that goes into it. We've actually had, some examples in the industry where we have tried to, uh, we've had companies that have tried to buck against the system a little bit and relaunch certain products with a lower list price and uptake for some of those products has been pretty limited, um, unfortunately, because of the incentives that are in the system. But relative to, um, to talk about US pricing versus the rest of the world, there's no question that for most brand name products, um, we do pay more here in the United States. On the other hand, we pay a lot less for generics 
here in this country um, than, uh, than globally. Um, I do think that the, U the United States bears um, uh, a heavy burden, is really sort of paying more than our fair share for the innovation engine um, for the world. It's true that we're sort of um, carrying the world. Um, on the other hand, though, when you look at some of these, these countries that have um, sort of these draconian price controls, newer products are not available um, for those patients to the same extent that they are here. So you get really sick with a serious illness, believe me, you want to be um, in the United States. That's one of the things I read, and it was that, you know, in the, in the U.S., we are two years ahead more likely to get something, um, or we're going to get things sooner than they are in Europe because of the way that the market works here. Yes, please. Okay. Um, I will just go ahead and say uh, probably what a lot of you have heard, which is that prices really are on the basis of what the market can bear. And that actually kind of speaks to the transparency efforts that we've heard mentioned already um, in the sense that we don't have a lot of information about how prices are set. But the times that we have gotten those information, and a great example is a congressional investigation that focused on Savaldi, which is that incredibly expensive hepatitis C drug that came out several years ago. Um, it turned out that the price was set on the tipping point of maximizing profit and upsetting everyone to the point that they got a lot of blowback on it. And that actually was how that decision was made. Um, and so there's a lot of churn in the system in the sense of, you know, those prices really do seem to be set on the basis of what manufacturers think they can get away with. Um, and another great example of that is something else that's been mentioned today, which is insulin. Um, insulin has been around for close to 100 years. Um, some research indicates the cost to produce, because there hasn't been a whole lot of innovation in terms of insulin in the sense that it's better than older versions. So keep that in mind. Um, to create a vial of insulin, the cost to the company is around 3 to $6, depending on the type. And they're selling for $300 a vial or more. So again, it seems to be a profit-maximizing type system, which goes back to trying to get kind of under the covers a little bit more and figure out exactly how these prices are being set, because we're seeing what we're seeing right now doesn't have a lot of indication that it's being set um, for patients. So let's let's move a little bit toward the solution side here, because um, I oh I'm sorry did you want to sorry yeah I, I just want to respond um, you know I would the, the statement I would make about uh, about pharmaceutical pricing writ large is that pharmaceutical prices reflect the value right so we wouldn't expect that you know the eighth um, medicine in some class for uh, for you know a runny nose or some minor illness is going to be priced like a gene therapy breakthrough that's going to cure some type of cancer. So it really depends on what the value is that the product brings to the market. To use, for example, the hepatitis example, it cures the disease, right? It's a complete cure in almost every case. So you have to keep in mind. The, uh, the benefits to the system in terms of eliminating hospitalization and in that case um, organ transplantation and so forth. I would completely disagree that there hasn't been um, significant change in, in the insulin market. There have been huge changes and the, the human um, genetically engineered insulin of today is absolutely nothing like the insulin of 50 years ago. And just one final note I have to make because we talk so much about the insulin um, market these days. It really is perhaps the best example of the difference between gross price and net price. And if you look at the data, net prices um, in the insulin market are down.
how do you assess value? I mean, how what is a val what is value in a in a drug? How do you how do you how do we assess value? Anybody? Comments and then and then pass the the mic. I think it's I think there are a couple dimensions to it. One is obviously what does it do for the patient first and foremost. So um, how does it how does it benefit the patient? Does it does it extend life? Does it save lives? Um, I would also look at uh, cost avoidance in other areas in terms of what it does for the overall uh, healthcare system. Um, and just to mention, so our, our CEO was um, a former executive at a drug company, and he's famously mentioned uh, during interviews that, you know, in no, in no uncertain circumstances that when they talk about pricing in those, in those meetings, um, the R&D never came up. It was, what will the market bear? Um, so I think that's, that's kind of the key issue. Um, you know, and I, I agree with Leon on that insulin from what our, our research is, is similarly uh, respected. So, um, you know, I think that's just kind of an underlying theme to it. Senator. So, Leah, I think, and, and I heard my friend in the front row say this, value is so subjective. Um, our determination of values and the eye of who's in the, the structure at the time. Um, I think um, value, and we heard uh, from, from Kip a little bit, what he thinks value is. I, I would imagine those who are um, more consumer advocates would say value is how much I've paid for it. Um, I think some of us who run government programs have the responsibility of funding government programs would say value is what is it costing the taxpayers that we have the fiduciary responsibility to manage. Um, so that, that aspect is highly subjective. One, one of the things, though, is an earlier point you were talking about. If you think about uh, how pricing is done, say, in, in the U.K. So the U.K. has a body that determines basically how much they're going to pay. So they say, all right, here's the drug and how much are we going to pay? And this is what you're going to sell it for. And some, some, or at least more importantly, this is what we'll pay. You can sell it for whatever you want, but this is what you're going to, we're going to give you. And I think in, in some states have begun to look at that. Um, maybe coming soon, some states like New Jersey will be looking at that. Um, but that being, Breaking news. That, that being said, um, there's the, the broader concept, though, that I think we have to find, and, and I'm, these are my words, find this sweet spot. Because as was said earlier, a lot of the manufacturing for these, for these drugs and a lot of the jobs that are associated with them are in our state. Um, and our state has a, has a huge footprint in the medical sciences. And as we're, as we're thinking about that, we have to make sure that we don't, as, as, as Mar said, we don't cripple innov innovation without hurting the folks who actually need the finished product but also not bigfooting economic development in our state and jobs in our state. Um, it's, it's a conversation that, that we don't intertwine enough that perhaps should be intertwined more, but there are ways to do that. There are, there are absolutely ways to do that. Some of it begins with more transparency, but it, but it also begins with trying to look at things like value from a different perspective, value as in what it's going to cost us, with making sure that we can still deliver good healthcare products and not sending people to the poorhouse for being sick. Because those are the calls as a legislator that come into my office. I can't pay my rent. I can't pay my mortgage. And like I said, I've, I've had incredible conversations, whether I'm called insurers about this or called pharmaceutical companies directly. And each and every time we've been able to solve that particular individual's problem. But for every one call I get, there are two dozen that don't call me or two dozen that don't call my colleagues. And we can't continue this status quo because this is an, an issue that continues and continues to grow. And, and until 
we have either a national solution or some really smart state solutions that can be cobbled together, we're going to have panels like this time and time again, because everyone that I talk to knows someone, as was said, that are facing these challenges. But we can do it in a responsible way. We don't have to cripple innovation. We don't have to lose economic development. And heaven forbid, we should never go to the poorhouse because we got sick. So we, we, can, we can do that. And we can work on ways creatively to do that. And there are a whole host of, of, you know, we got a dozen or so ideas that we've thrown out that are already in legislative form. And, and, and we're hopeful to continue to engage in that conversation. But, but this can be done. This is not an insolvable problem. It's a matter of making sure that the perspective and the voice of the consumer, because that balloon we keep hearing about, the hot air that gets squeezed in the face is to the consumer because they're paying more and more and more. So we have to figure out a way to do that, and it can be done. We just need to creatively work together to do that. And, and just one more thing to add as we try to, uh, finding that value is, is a very tough question, obviously. Um, but there are some very smart people out there and some institutes that are looking at that and trying to figure that out. The, um, the ICER, the Institutes for Clinical Effective Research, um, they just came out last week with a report. Uh, they were looking at the top 10 drugs. I think they narrowed it down to nine. Seven of the nine, they said uh, the price increases were not uh, warranted. Um, and they go through a, a whole bunch of, um, you know, what is the R&D of that? What is the impact to the patient's lifestyle? The, and they talk to the communities as well. So there are um, some very uh, good organizations out there taking a look at that. We definitely look at their research as well, um, as well as our, our partners who price our formulas, if that's uh, our formularies, if that's us or our PBM partners. Yeah, I, we got an uh, we had an op-ed the other day um, from uh, another pharma-related group that raised concerns about is it ICER? I, I see. Yeah, um, of course I googled them right away. Had to figure out what they were, but um, it's it's kind of fascinating stuff. Um, I think Senator Singleton mentioned something uh, that I wanted to point out. Um, I want to talk about the Plone bill a little and get into the sort of solution side. Um, but my understanding is that pharma estimated alone that the Pallone bill could cost the U.S. a million jobs and that 500 to 100,000 of those, 50 to 100,000 of those would be in New Jersey. So New Jersey was one of the three states that would be most impacted by what they predicted would be um, downsizing in the pharma industry. But let's, let's talk a little bit about this bill. So this bill would, it, it does a lot of sort of, um, sort of staggering things, I guess, or, or, or very different things. Um, it would empower the federal government to, uh, to negotiate um, on at least 25 drugs a year. Um, and it, it sort of starts, it would require them to make a list of the 250 most costly um, non-generic uh, brand name drugs and negotiate on at least 25 a year. Um, and those negotiations would be capped to um, average prices from, I think, a half dozen foreign countries. Um, and then their taxes, if people, if the pharmaceutical industry didn't, um, didn't provide those prices um, of up to 95% of gross sales, which I thought was a shockingly high number. Um, but I guess if you want to make a point, that's one way to do it. Um, and the thing that I thought was most fascinating about this is that the prices wouldn't just apply to Medicaid or Medicare, they would also apply to the commercial market. So I don't know where to start. Lee, do you want to start with this? I, I mean, yeah, there's a lot here. 
Um, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on this bill. So, yes, and unfortunately, you've just barely brushed the surface on what's in there. Right. Um, there are a lot of different Skip provisions. the whole donut hole. Exactly. There are a lot of different provisions in there that AARP supports, including the bill overall, um, one of which is instituting a hard out-of-pocket cap under Medicare Part D, which is something that doesn't currently exist and a lot of people don't know. Um, right now, under Medicare Part D, when you hit, quote-unquote, catastrophic coverage, you're still responsible for 5% of your prescription drug costs for the rest of the year. So if you're on a, an expensive drug, that can lead to some people having out-of-pocket costs that exceed $10,000 per year for Medicare Part D alone. So this bill is a really important change, at least from our perspective, in the sense that you would finally have a hard cap of $2,000, and that would be the amount that you would have to pay for the year as a Medicare Part D enrollee for your prescription drug costs. Um, it also makes some changes to how the benefit is structured that are probably too weedy for here. Um, but another important thing is that it would penalize drug manufacturers that increase their prices faster than inflation, which, as you heard in my opening remarks, adds up over time um, and can lead to much higher prices than what the prices were when the products first came on the market. So that's something else that we found particularly fascinating. And then, as you mentioned, negotiation. Um, a lot of people don't know that Medicare is currently prohibited from negotiating on behalf of its beneficiaries under Medicare Part D. This would allow the secretary to negotiate with drug manufacturers for, as you mentioned, subsets of drugs that lead to particularly high spending. Um, and that number of drugs would increase over time. And the amount of savings associated with this bill is remarkable. Um, someone actually told me who was on the Hill um, when Medicare Part D was implemented, that the amount of money we're talking about is the amount of money that was put aside by President Bush to create the entire program of Medicare Part D. We're talking three, $400 billion. I um, mean, other estimates have shown exactly how much savings will go into the larger healthcare market for employers, for beneficiaries. Um, this is an incredibly important, incredibly big bill that does a lot of important things that, yes, we definitely support. It also has, uh, the, politically, it faces a very challenging road ahead, correct? It is definitely. Let's be honest. <laughs> um, given what's happening in Washington, D.C. right now, there are definitely no certainties. Um, but it does include a lot of ideas that do have bipartisan appeal. So again, we're hopeful, but the crystal ball, as everyone says, is broken at this point. So. I just find it, I find it interesting because it did seem like a very sort of, it, it seemed like there were a number of bold ideas in there that have been kicked around, but it, you know, we're now on paper in sort of one place. There um, were, and, and one important thing to mention, and you, you noted this, um, is that there will be, uh, at least kind of as a starting point for negotiation, looking at prices in other countries, which is actually something that the current administration has proposed as well for, for Medicare. So this is an idea, again, that kind of crosses boundaries. Yeah. And it's interesting to me what the Trump administration, I mean, I, I believe that the, um, the CMS administrator said this morning that she doesn't favor negotiations, but she likes the idea of looking at foreign markets. So it's interesting to me. Um, drug companies are already negotiating with private sector, I mean, with, with insurance companies, correct? Correct. Can you talk a little bit about that, Kip and Chris? That's right. There's already um, a very robust uh, market-based negotiation that is, uh, that is within Part D. And I think generally, by most accounts, Part D has been a tremendous success. It's not perfect. It needs to be, the benefit design needs to be updated to, um, to make sure patients um, end up in a, in, a, in a good place. But um, you know, generally, the, the, the program has worked well. There are very substantial rebates that are already negotiated in the Part D program. What the, what the Pallone legislation would do, um, and we disagree with the nomenclature, right? They're, they're, it's being described as a negotiation to us 
doing what many of these com countries in Europe do now is not a negotiation at all. These, these are prices that are, that are imposed. Um, I, I would say that you know, to, to call it negotiation, that's sort of like saying, you know, the, the, the way that an alligator negotiates with a duck, right? And the, the patients really are, are held in the balance because the way the, the so-called negotiation would work would be to um, threaten access for, for patients. So we think it's a, a really bad idea. We strongly oppose that legislation. We think it's a, an economic killer. We think it's an innovation killer. And we think, frankly, it's a, a hope killer. The Congressional Budget Office actually sent correspondence to Chairman Pallone last week expressing grave concerns about the, uh, the effects that the legislation would have on innovation and research and development and um, predicted that it could result in 8 to 15 fewer new molecules being um, approved here in the United States. Chris? Sure. So, um, and I think from that study, I think the CBO study kind of also kind of included that if you look at all the titles together, you're looking at maybe more than a trillion savings. But at the same point, now it's tricky. Yeah, a little tricky. Um, you know, I, I think from from the perspective of, of I would agree with Kip. I think you know we do a lot of negotiations right now with Part D. I think we are having some struggles um, with single source drugs. Um, that becomes you know where we see some of these high costs, and we don't have. Uh, any competition that the you have a monopoly on one, um, but for the most part, I, th I think it's a program that works well. Um, you know the issues from what we're seeing coming from Capitol Hill. I think what we're, you know, it's bold. It's it's looking at getting right to the source. Um, but I think we could all agree that what we really need is a bipartisan solution. We need to get something passed. We need to get something um, that helps not. Uh, shift costs that helps actually the taxpayers uh, save money into their pocket at the end of the day. Um, so I think that's what we're kind of looking at is any kind of solutions we can get everyone on board with. Before we go into state solutions, I just we did get a question on rebates, and I want to make sure that people are clear on who gets them. And, and my understanding is these are rebates that are negotiated between, well, why don't I not talk? Why don't I let someone who knows what they're saying talk? Chris? Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do, uh, you know, Kim and I are on different sides on this one. I, I think, you know, we'll take two, two opinions on rebates <laughs> we'll and who gets them. Um, you know, they kind of look at it and, and say that, you know, rebates are part of the problem. We look at it that as a, a diversionary tactic in reality. Um, out of the prescriptions we looked at in 2016, 89% uh, of them don't get rebates. So we're talking about a very small amount of are those are those the generics? Every, everything. Okay. So we're we're talking about cross okay. across the board. Um, and usually where we see rebates is when you have brand to brand competition. It's not um, it's not a single um, monopoly of a, of one drug, um, which is again where we're having some issues. Um, so I know that you know the the rebates in general from that perspective. Um, you know a, a, the other issue too is that. We're not married to rebates. We don't love rebates. Um, we're fine finding another solution. Um, I think the issue, though, is that because of some litigation in court cases, uh, we can't get discounts right from pharmaceuticals from the get-go because of, of some laws that are in place. Um, so we have to do workarounds. And at this point, the rebates are the only ways to get workarounds and to get um, and to utilize the levers that we have and the buying power that we have to lower the cost as low as we can get. So there are some there are some complications and, and some issues around it that uh, make it not just a, a cut and dry type of issue. Yep. Then we're going to bring it down to the 
local conversation. So I, we supported the, um, the the recent proposal this year to, as I mentioned, um, sort of blow up the system, create this sea change, and it would have um, drastically altered the landscape and effectively gotten rid of rebates. And the, um, and the insurance industry and AARP were on the other side opposing that um, reform. But I do just want to make sure folks understand how it works, because it, it, it's, it's complicated, right? So manufacturers um, negotiate rebates with these entities, pharmacy benefit managers. Insurers hire the pharmacy benefit managers generally to negotiate those rebates to bring down their net costs. Um, the, I would say that the pharmacy benefit managers, the PBMs, are probably the least understood entity in this whole system. Um, and we've called upon um, more transparency for PBMs at the state level, and that's certainly something that's happening. The PBMs would say that they, they share rebates with their customers, the insurers, and, and, and they do. The extent to which they share them is not particularly clear. The question is, um, what should happen to the rebates? You know, the way we see it, the rebate essentially should go to the patient. Um, why should the patient pay the full price if his or her insurer is getting the benefit of the discount? So we support legislation at the state level to push the rebate to the patient right away, or at least some substantial part of the rebate. We think that's something that we can do right now that is gonna directly benefit patients. Now, the, the criticism of that would be, oh, that might drive um, premiums up. It might increase premiums. We have analysis indicating that we think it's going to save patients on average hundreds of dollars per year and have a pretty minimal effect on, on premiums. But I'll tell you, even if it did affect premiums, um, to me, the purpose of insurance, right, is for the, um, is to spread out the risk and benefit the patients, the sick patients that are on the medicines, right? To take the money, to take the rebates and not use those rebates to reduce the cost for the patients who are on the medicines, it seems me to um, sort of run counter to what insurance is supposed to be. Sure. You got called out specifically. Um, just a little bit more background on the rebate rule. It wasn't ARP and insurers, it was ARP insurers and pretty much everyone else involved in the healthcare system that was pushing back on this idea. And a lot of it stems from a CBO analysis that found that federal spending would increase by $200 billion. Premiums would increase for everyone in the Medicare program. Prices would stay the same, if not continue getting even higher, and manufacturers would see a huge windfall because there's no guarantee that if rebates went away, whatever delta was there would not just be absorbed by manufacturers, and CBO, in fact, said that it would be absorbed by manufacturers. So this issue is definitely more complicated than it seems, but I think the one thing to take away from rebates is at least under Medicare Part D, Right now, those rebates are not just disappearing into the ether. They are going back to beneficiaries in terms of lowering premiums. That is why CBO scored so much higher spending under the Medicare program, because Medicare covers part of those premium costs, and premium costs would go up if the rebates went away. And that's just plans responding to the fact that enrollees shop on the basis of premiums. This is a logical thing for them to be doing. So if those rebates go away, you see the premiums go up, and we don't want to see coverage become unaffordable. So they are playing a role in the system. They are playing an important role in the system. And as has been mentioned, if they go away and there's nothing else to replace them, we really are kind of throwing ourselves at the mercy of drug manufacturers and their pricing with very little to negotiate with. It's just, it seems like such a complicated system, and if you take out, start taking out pieces, I mean, it, it almost makes you wonder if we don't need a total rebuild. But um, before we leave the H, before we leave H3, um, we got a question uh, online. Will the Trump administration support it? I'm guessing that's a no, but. 
I mean, they've already come out against part of Too soon to tell. Okay. Um, Senator Singleton, I'd like you to talk a little bit about some of the work that you're doing here. I know you've had a number of bills. I've written about a transparency bill. Um, it was a bill that looked at a Bernie Sanders concept. Um, so tell us a little bit about your, your, what, what you're looking at on the state front and how that's going. First of all, thank you for the question. I'm, I'm incredibly excited about some of the things that we've been very patient and waiting for that. Question. Been ever with some of the things we've been able to accomplish. Um, so we've looked at this, as I said, holistically. I look at it. We're coming into the the vantage point that um, there's not one entity within this spectrum that does not have a, a role to play in why prices have increased and not been able to be uh, brought down. So we've looked at increasing transparency is what I've talked about. One of the things that we've already passed in the Senate that is pending uh, with my colleagues in the Assembly is a proposal that will require our, our State Board of Pharmacy uh, to uh, establish their drug pricing disclosure uh, website and, and have that information that comes from pharmaceutical companies so we can have that very uh, direct conversation about specifics, the name of a drug, what's the, what was the cost, and then can determine how much it got back to our pockets. Um, we also were able to move through committee, um, and that's why I'm excited about some of the stuff that uh, Congressman Pallone has, has initiated, because we've already started that debate here in New Jersey. We passed a proposal out of the Senate Health Committee that looks at the pricing for uh, drugs in other countries and seeing what that cost is and making sure that that cost is what we were going to pay in the state of New Jersey was not exceeded of the costs that are done around the globe um, for the same exact drug. I mean, you can, and I'm sure folks can regale you with numbers, um, you know, the price of Lipitor in the United States of America is exponentially higher than the price of Lipitor in other parts of the country. Um, excuse me, of the world. Forgive me. Other parts of the world. The same exact drug. And the, the argument about that the American taxpayer, it's one of the things we looked at with when you use public funded research, that that cost shouldn't, shouldn't be disproportionate. Um, and, and, and we look at those things, and, we, and we've also, quite frankly, uh, have legislation that is, is in the works that has moved that has also looked at the idea of passing savings along direct to consumers, um, sort of what Kip was, was talking about to some degree, to reduce premiums directly. Um, we've we've produ produced those proposals. And, and the thing that, that I, I know I get frustrated about, um, legislators, we write bills and laws that's sort of in the job description as to what we do. Um, but the bigger challenge that we have, and, and this is why this forum is so important, is all of that doesn't amount to a hill of beans if individuals aren't willing to invest themselves in being civically engaged to try and help us move things forward. And I think the more folks who are civically engaged to do that, when they look at these policies and look at these things, then that forces not just me as a legislator and my other 119 colleagues, but that forces the industry, that, that enforces the insurers to look at their models and how those models need to change. Because ultimately it goes back to some vote that someone has to take that are gonna be restructuring the system or ultimately, as I said, as, as uh, with the fiduciary responsibility to pay for these things. And if all of us as taxpayers, no matter where you sit in the spectrum of your own political ideology, but if all of us as taxpayers can agree that the, the price structure is out of bounds, and every national poll you see on this shows that, it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat, Republican, or independent, you know something needs to be done. Too often the, the cynicism that uh, per, gets, comes prevailing in government 
means that folks don't take the initiative to try and get engaged and do that. That's why I'm thankful for this forum and thankful for those who are here. But we need more folks to get engaged to change this conversation. Because as I said, th there are literally no white knights in this, in this conversation. Everyone has, has played a role in putting us in a position in which we're in. So we need to have more engagement along these topics. Some of those bill ideas that we've talked about, they may not make it to the finish line. They may be a start of an, an additional conversation. But I guarantee you, if, if proposals that I've done and others have done and Congressman Pallone is doing, if they just languish around, then, then again, we will be here again having these conversations over and over and over again. And I think we are at a tipping point where the conversation needs to move from concept to concrete action. So, as I said, we have uh, some initiatives that we're, we've worked on, that we've worked on for the last several years that we'll continue to push. But none of that, again, mounts to a hill of beans if we don't all get engaged enough to try and move this issue to the front burner more so and demand action and demand that those who aren't who are standing in our way of action don't have the opportunity to stand in the way any further. And I think because so much of this is market based, because so much of this has that tinge of politics to it, it can be done utilizing the same tool and the same vestige that has always made change in our country. And that's through our ballot box and our vote and our initiative. So if you want to see real change, then you have to get engaged. Democracy is a participatory sport. You don't get to sit on the sidelines unless the change won't happen. And there are a lot of solutions here that we can get done. Laura, I'd like you to, yeah, I'd like to, to hear what Citizen Action, you know, how you're doing. We're signed up. <laughs> um, so I, as I sit here and I'm looking at the slide, uh, I think the most important word in this title today is and. Uh, I'm a, I'm a great supporter and cheerleader for transparency. Uh, but like we've said in the past when we've encountered this, transparency is often used as a weapon to minimize real concrete reform. And, you know, I like to say, if you give me transparency, basically you tell me you're gonna charge me too much and then you charge me too much, thank you very much. We can't do price transparency without cost control because our entire nation cannot sustain the healthcare spending that we currently have. And as a consumer health advocate and just as a human being, I would like to say that the resolution is not more dead bodies. It's not not giving people the health care they need. We can't start with cutting benefits. We can't start with closing the door to treatments that patients need. Right? Pharma manufacturers have monopolies. Insurers have formularies and rebates. What do patients have? We don't have power, but who does have the power? And this is where we fully support the exploration of state initiatives. The state has both the authority and huge purchasing power to move the needle on costs. Nearly three million lives are involved in our state health benefits plan, our children's health insurance program, and New Jersey family care. 
the state and the taxpayers are paying a lot of money for healthcare costs in addition to our own individual costs. So we have the power and I would like to suggest no matter what the data, I think all stakeholders need to have a sit down and, and work through this. But one thing I know for sure, if we control costs, Armageddon is not going to happen. I'm glad you brought up the purchasing power of the state because we did. We got a question about um, the state. Uh, New Jersey has now started uh, what is calling a reverse auction uh, initiative practice where it's engaged a company that um, has become very good at this. And they're essentially, it, it's, I believe it works sort of like a PBM, but it works in real time to kind of audit claims and um, identify best prices and a lot of other things that all happen at the same time in an amazing computer program um, that they, of course, have uh, patented. But um, and it's saving, uh, the, the predictions are it's, it's going to save hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, I don't know, has anyone got, heard an update on that? I don't know, Senator Singleton, if you've heard any news on that. Um, it was an initi initiative of Senator Sweeney's. Um, I, I just, I, I think that they're starting to recognize the purchasing power involved. And, and you know, this, the, New Jersey may be the largest sort of public group to be using this practice so far. So it will be interesting to see where that goes. Um, but speaking of some of the other things you mentioned, cost control. Um, other states are starting to look at that, right? There's a number of states that have these, uh, these councils that they've created to essentially look at prices and establish what, what an um, illegitimate or a, 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 high, a price hike that's too high. Um, and then we have a couple states that are looking to buy uh, prescription drugs overseas, uh, or overseas, or at least from another country, I guess Canada and Mexico, so not overseas, um, although Puerto Rico is. Um, but tell us a little bit about, uh, Lee, I don't know if, if you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in other states and how some of those ideas are working there. Yeah, I, I would say that by far we are seeing the most activity at the state level, and that's something that ARP has been very engaged in, given our number of state offices and our we're here today, um, and they've been integral to getting legislation passed. And I think a lot of what we're seeing comes back to transparency. Um, we've already mentioned people wanting to get a better idea of what's behind prices. And you mentioned um, kind of transparency on steroids, which is these affordability review boards that actually go in and try to figure out whether or not a price or price increase is justified. And in some instances, we'll actually say, you know what, we're not paying more than this. Um, those are new, but that is definitely kind of an indication, I think, of exactly what dire circumstances a lot of states are in when it comes to spending on prescription drugs. Going back to the squeezing the balloon analogy, there's only so much money to go around at the state level, and they have to balance their budgets, which is a very different beast than what we're dealing with at the federal level. And so you are seeing states coming up with these ideas like affordability review boards, like importation that you mentioned. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with that, some states have passed legislation that would allow them to work with FDA to safely import drugs from countries that have lower priced products. Same product, but a lower priced. Um, we're seeing a lot of that as well. We've seen a lot of in, um, interest in the pharmacy benefit managers. Um, a lot of different efforts to um, really just kind of get to finding a way to lower prices, for example, through uh, more extensive negotiation. California is very interested in something called bulk purchasing. 
which is really where they're trying to gain leverage by getting as many people in the negotiation, representing as many people as possible to try to push down those prices. Um, what's been fascinating is that some other states outside of California have said, hey, if they get that going, we want to jump in on that too. Isn't so that essentially what Express Scripts and, and, I mean, and CVS are doing as PBMs? I mean, is that... It, but in this instance, it would be the state. And California, um, as we all know, is enormous. So they represent a lot of people, a lot of different programs, a lot of taxpayer-funded programs. Um, so again, trying to get find ways to negotiate with drug manufacturers and get those prices down. So a lot of innovative, interesting ideas out there. Chris? Sure, and I think... Um, uh, agree with Lee, and, and we've seen a lot of states pass uh, the drug transparency, and, and absolute kudos to, to Senator Singleton in, in trying to really get that going here in New Jersey. Um, you know, we've been pressing it in, in other states. And, and while I, I think to Kit's point, I, I don't think, you know, I think over time, uh, in the past maybe one or two years from an anecdotal perspective, it looks like their hike increases are not going as high every year. Um, we still have problems with launch prices, but I think it's because it's a first step of getting that drug transparency. It's it's taking a look at that. It's bringing uh, more attention to it, and any time we can bring attention to it uh, is a good thing. California actually just passed, I think just a couple of weeks ago, two other issues. Um, one was the pay for delay. So what um, pharmaceutical companies can do is actually pay uh, the generic counterpart through litigation and other perspectives. But basically what they're doing is they're paying um, a generic company not to make their drug. Um, and that's called a pay for delay. Uh, and that's currently legal. So California has outlawed that. And we'll see how that progresses. Um, the other issue is, is third party payments, which is really kind of an ugly system. This is uh, happens hopefully not very far and wide, but it, there were several cases in California where you had um, dialysis centers. And when you have someone on dialysis, commercial carriers pay more um, for that treatment than, say, Medicare or Medicaid. And what these dialysis centers were doing was actually taking those patients um, through either an open enrollment, through the exchange or what have you, getting them onto commercial uh, commercial policies because we pay more. And then as soon as their dialysis ended, they kind of pushed them out the door and then they couldn't afford the commercial uh, the commercial product anymore and they couldn't get back onto the public program. So um, they took a, a, a step there and, and have outlawed that, that egregious behavior as well. So um, there's lots of other issues. Another perspective that we've seen a couple states look at is um, making sure that the pharmaceutical sales reps are actually telling the providers the costs of the drugs. That seems basic. Um, but we're not seeing that. Um, and, and kind of explaining it from a perspective of there's a new drug out there called Duaxis, and Duaxis is basically Prolisec with ibuprofen. Uh, costs about a thousand bucks, where uh, Prolisec is about a little over a hundred and your ibuprofen. Um, so, you know, doctors are like, oh, we'll just prescribe it. It's you know, one pill instead of two, and, and they're not understanding the costs that are involved. Uh, and I think getting, you know, that kind of, not just transparency from the drug costs, but also uh, to the doctors and the providers and the hospitals and getting everyone in the game kind of, you know, we see those costs every day and we want other people to see those costs every day, uh, every chance we get. So I think there's other opportunities out there. Um, we got like five or six at AHIP that we're trying to push through and work with states on. So, you know, we're getting steam and trying to, to progress those ideas in different ways. I know um, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield here in New Jersey has created um, software, I think there are commercial versions available as well, um, for its doctors. And it essentially, as soon as they start to write a prescription, it essentially um, provides options. If there are drugs that are um, 
also appropriate for that uh, treatment, it will list those on the screens, and some of those have lower price points. And the doctors, I mean, it takes, the important thing to me was, or at least to the doctors as well, was that it doesn't take any extra time. It is immediate. It does not slow the process, but it gives them an opportunity to then turn to their patient and say, oh, you know, we could try this instead. You know, it may not even matter to the patient. The, the copay may be the same, but I thought it was interesting because you start to empower people to sort of change the, the overall. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, the, 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 just the amount of software that's out there and, and carriers that are taking that on, we're seeing that on just the claims, we're seeing that in, in um, a, a form we call prior authorization. Um, it's really kind of getting those costs to the consumer, I and mean, we believe absolutely the consumer should always have transparency on what their payments are, what their costs are before and when they get to the pharmacy. Uh, and these tools which are there, um, our, our members are cutting edge and trying to get this um, out to the patient and get them into. I think our stopping point is really getting the provider side to, you know, getting into the software because it's it's not expensive. I mean, we, we spend a lot of money on resources to get this software going to the point of where, because we think it makes sense and is the best for our consumers. Um, but sometimes, uh, you know, not all of our providers or hospitals are that advanced in, in technology, so we try to help them with that as well. It's a learning curve, I know, because it takes time out of their day. Kip, um, I'd like to hear what you're, what you're seeing on the state front. Sure. Well, certainly no disagreement that the action is in the states, and there's a, there's a ton of activity, lots and lots of legislation. It seems like every year is busier than the, the last. Um, you know, some good proposals um, in our view, and some proposals that we think are bad policy. A lot of work certainly being done in the transparency space. And you know, some of these proposals we, we support, our, our focus is on transparency that, that helps patients navigate the system, right? So we think that um, patients understanding what prices are, how uh, benefit design works um, is beneficial. That's a place that we can go that helps patients right now. You know, what we saw after the passage of the Affordable Care Act and the advent of all these exchanges out in the states, trying to tackle this problem of the uninsured. We saw patients going on to these exchanges who frankly struggled to understand the way insurance benefit design works. So a lot of them might have been on multiple medications, but what they did is they went online and they immediately gravitated toward the plan that had the lowest premium, right? But that might not have been the best plan for certain patients because perhaps they were on medications, maybe they weren't looking at the extent to which they were going to have to pay a deductible or coinsurance and so forth. So transparency and openness of pricing and benefit design is a great thing for, for patients and we would support that. Um, there's also some interesting work going on in the states with respect to um, value-based payments and alternative payment models. That's something I think where our, our members, Chris, would, would get together and, and agree. Um, Medicaid, a couple of states have done something that's really interesting. We support voluntary alternative payment models in state Medicaid programs. And let me just give you one example um, that I think is relatively understandable. So we refer to it as like the Netflix model. Um, some states have, um, have worked with manufacturers to come up with sort of like all you can eat models for certain, um, for certain medications where the state can pay a certain amount to the manufacturer. This is done through a supplemental rebate agreement under the federal Medicaid rebate statute. So the state can pay a set amount and then utilize as much of the 
as much of the medication as it needs for its population. So we do think there are some reforms in that uh, space that make sense that, that we can work on. Interesting. Senator, anything else that you want to, that we should be looking at here? Um, go ahead if you had something. I was just going to say, there are three ideas that came up, and I'm just wondering if they would fit. I, I feel like they might fit in more on a federal level, but um, people mentioned, I think it was three different questions. Somebody mentioned the salaries involved. Um, and I'll be honest, I don't think this was just in pharma. This is sort of across the board in the healthcare sector. Um, salaries, marketing costs, um, the point being that, you know, we didn't used to see drugs advertised on television, um, and also lobbying costs. Um, I know lobbyists are paid nothing, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm just curious, are those, do you see those as, as things that might be worth tackling on a state level, or are you thinking elsewhere? And then I'm happy to take it down the other side on this. So I think um, so some of the challenges that we run into are always the that pesky commerce clause of our constitution that runs, um, jams up a lot of these Stifles broader discussions. Stifles good ideas, as, doesn't it? Our, as that founding document um, is a brilliant document, but it also creates a little complications when it comes to some of these things. Um, but with respect to, to some of the stuff that has been talked about, um, there are um, proposals that are, are currently in that address many of the issues that have talked about, the ones where there seem to be commonality from, from my friends at the end of the, the dais here. Um, and, and there are others that have been talked about that are also um, in the development stage from talking to some of my colleagues as well. Uh, we're in a weird sort of timeline here in our state cycle because we're running up to the start of a new legislative session. So I, I predict you'll, you'll see folks who will uh, introduce proposals that are related to that as they've seen, um, like we talked about the one piece about that advisory board I heard talked about in Maryland has already uh, done something like that. And I think the idea is to see where that evolves to. Um, so you got a little bit of time with that. The California bulk purchasing model also is relatively new. So, you know, folks want to see sort of the, the, the hits and misses as, as it were, uh, as it relates to that. Um, but there are, um, I don't want folks to, to, to leave with a sense that um, the legislative body in New Jersey is not uh, looking at these issues or, or has proposals that are in without boring any, everybody with a bunch of S this and A that. Um, there's a ton of proposals that, that address the crux of these issues that we've talked about today, and I predict there'll be others forthcoming. Um, but with again, with respect to the specific question about uh, limiting uh, salaries and, and limiting the lobbying uh, budgets uh, as associated in the marketing and R&D. Um, I think the, the, at least, and I'm no lawyer, but I think the way to best approach that would be, it has to be more of a federal conversation as it relates to that. Because um, when the folks in Maryland initially tried to do their drug pricing controls, they were struck down in court and struck down in court as I said, because of the Commerce Clause of our Constitution. So that's a tricky dynamic for the length of runway states have. Um, but there are some pretty cool and innovative things that other states have done that New Jersey is in this incubation stage of trying to move forward. Great. We just have a few minutes left. And I'd like, if we can, just do a quick round. We'll start down there. Um, if there was one thing that you would tell consumers, I mean, if there's one sort of piece of useful advice, you know, not to just to help them get through this problem in the short term, 
Maybe it's call a congressman. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's you know, ask about something. W what would it be? Sorry to put you on the spot. She has five minutes while the mic turns off. <laughs> one thing, I don't know if I can say one thing, um, but I think the senator is right. I mean, to, uh, to get active is, is always a good thing. Um, and I would also say, you know, if there's any confusion with your benefits, if you're having issues paying for your drugs, call your, call your carrier. We're here to help with you. Um, we want to work together and make sure good people are adhering to their to their programs as, as much as they possibly can. So from a health perspective, that's that's my push. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's an important point that there are programs out there. Is it, we can call it an imperfect system, but yeah, there are patches you can put on the quilt in the short term, right? And we're here to help our customers. They're obviously, uh, they mean you know everything to us. So that's, that's what we want to work together and, and get them the right kind of coverage that they need. Yep. I would tell consumers to um, assert their rights to the rebates that are paid back on their products. I would tell consumers to be vigilant and understand benefit design and how it works. And since this might be our, our last run down the line, I just want to quickly say, um, you know, we're focusing on, on uh, policies that will benefit patients right away at the state level. So um, I just want to put out there, that'll be, that'll be passing through um, rebates to, uh, to patients, that'll be um, pushing for first dollar coverage, that'll be pushing for um, fair cost sharing for patients, that'll be pushing for manufacturer assistance to um, count as if paid by patients themselves. Thank you. Lee. Well, I would not be doing my job if I did not reiterate the fact that AARP is currently engaged in a campaign focused on high prescription drug prices. So if you're interested in engaging on this issue, StopRxGreed is a great place to start. Um, but at a more personal level, the one thing that I always try to convey to patients who are struggling with high prescription drug prices is to keep that open dialogue with your healthcare provider. Um, there really is no way for your healthcare professional to know exactly what drugs are covered by your plan and in what way and what costs are associated with it. So if you find yourself facing a high prescription drug cost, have that conversation. There's a chance that there's an alternative that's less expensive or even a generic, and you should never turn away from the generic. Um, so having those conversations and being willing to advocate for yourself is really important. Thank you. First of all, thank you all for, for being here today and affording uh, all of us an opportunity to have this conversation with you. Um, that's not lost on me because there's a lot of things you could be doing, but we appreciate uh, you all being here. Um, I would just echo the sentiments that have been said already. Um, please get, in, get engaged in your own healthcare questions across this, the entire spectrum. Um, and when I and when I hear say talk to your healthcare providers, I'd also get engaged with your pharmacists as well. As when you're at the pharmacy, get engaged with them because. Everybody, again, in this, in this ongoing issue has a different perspective and perhaps different information on how to lower the cost to the individual that's right in front of them. It's beneficial to both your doctor and to your pharmacist because your doctor doesn't want you to have to make that sort of uh, Hobson's choice, as it were, of whether or not you take your medicine or go without. And the, the pharmacist's responsibility is to make sure that they're getting you the best medicine as well. And, and I think your, the insurers and, and the, the pharmaceutical manufacturers I think everyone has the construct that we have an individual patient slash consumer that has to be made better by the, pharm by the pharmaceutical prescription drugs they're taking. Um, it's our obligation to make sure that, again, folks don't go to the poorhouse because they got sick. So that's going to take your cooperation as well. And more than just your cooperation, your active engagement to do that. 
So continue those conversations with your healthcare providers all along the spectrum. Continue your conversations with policymakers at every level demanding real change in action. And just continue being a self-advocate. In, in my office, we call them citizen legislators. Uh, we believe in that. And, and, and you don't need a title to be a citizen legislator because the biggest title you have is voter. And that's what matters the most. So stay engaged and stay active. Thank you. I would agree with most everything that was said there. I think um, call, call Citizen Action, call AARP. Your stories matter. It's the stories of everyday people that are really going to change this dynamic. Um, get engaged. Call your representatives. Call your newspaper. Call Lilo. These are important stories that need to be told. Um, and, uh, and as an activist, march. Take your body to those places to tell that story. And please, 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 please vote. Thank you. I can't think of a better way to end, but I think, it's, it, I think that's a really good point, too, is that I've been covering this for a long time, and back in the day, it was hard to get a healthcare story on the front page. Now you've got people literally marching in the streets, right? So healthcare is appreciated in a way that it hasn't been. I think it's more of a priority um, to lawmakers, and I think you probably do have more power on this issue than you once did. So I think that's a great way to end. Thank you so much to my... All right. I know, do you want to respond to that? Sure. Um, our belief is that direct-to-consumer advertising empowers patients and gets them, um, increases their awareness and gets them into the physician office environment. Um, in many cases, um, getting medical attention when perhaps they otherwise wouldn't have. Just again, to go back to the numbers, um, because these numbers are getting thrown around. Um, the, the spending numbers, again, it's over, last year, over $90 billion spent by the industry in R&D, about $6 billion overall in direct-to-consumer advertising. So there's a really, a really stark difference. I just wanted to Thank you. those numbers. Can I just put one final thing? I, I forgot to mention in the closing comments. We're talking about patients. Um, Pharma has a new um, tool. It's referred to as the medication assistance tool, and it's easily Googleable if you just type that in. I saw that. If you have, if 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 it's it's out there as a um, a collection of all the benefits that Pharma's member companies offer to assist patients. So whether it's uninsured patients, whether it's patients that have insurance that need help. Um, with their cost sharing, it's all rolled up in the medication assistance tool, and I think it's a big benefit. Thank you. Thank you for taking that, and thank you again to my panelists. And uh, I think we're having a few words from John Mooney, but thanks to the audience. You've been great. You, panel. And also, and also Lilo, uh, our able moderator. And, and I'm impressed everybody wants to keep talking, and it'd be, you know, we, we at some point have to break. Um, but I want to uh, especially thank uh, you all for, for joining us. Um, there will be a, a bunch of things that will, will show up on our site next week, uh, including likely uh, an article that Lilo will write. We also have a podcast um, that will allow you to listen to this on your drive home, uh, as well as, the, as I mentioned, the live stream. Um, and I think the... The slideshows will also be available. All materials that you saw tonight will be available on, on the site, on the event site. So keep an eye out for that. Um, again, please fill out your surveys and, and 
you know, offer feedback on, on the event. I think it's, as I, as I mentioned, it's really important for us to learn from these and continue to improve. And once again, thank you very much for joining us and have a great weekend. We hope you enjoyed this program from NJ Spotlight. If you have comments or suggestions about these podcasts, please email info at njspotlight.com. Recording and post-production services for this podcast provided by State Broadcast News, a division of the Lubetkin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, on the web at statebroadcastnews.com. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.